This is a bonus episode of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. So if you haven't listened to the two Teresita Bassa bonus episodes, please do that before listening to this Q&A episode because there will be some spoilers here. The murder of Teresita Bassa and the trial that followed left way more questions than answers. This special bonus Q&A episode hopes to answer many of those questions that you might have. We are your hosts of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. I'm Stephanie Young. And I'm Todd Gans. And let's get right into our first question, which is about the crime scene. The question is, how was Teresita's door locked when the firemen arrived? So if you remember, her building's custodian actually unlocked the door for the firemen when they arrived. The door had one of those tumbler deadbolt locks on it. You know, the ones that automatically lock when the door closes behind you. This is important because in Alan's confession, he said that he actually knocked Teresita out while she was locking the door. So I guess the question is, why was she locking the door if that deadbolt automatically locked already? Right. Well, we found a photo of the door along with the deadbolt on it. It's posted at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. It's under the episodes tab. There's a drop down link to the Teresita Bassa bonus episode page. You can check the photo out there, but it's got one of those chain locks on it, too. So perhaps that's what she was locking when he knocked her out. But I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been that deadbolt because it automatically locked. Hey, guys, why didn't the cops get any fingerprints from Teresita's apartment? So keep in mind, it was 1977. So this is well before the advanced forensics of today. Back then, the cops were relying on lie detector tests and fingerprints. And because there was a fire at the apartment, that meant there was a lot of water and a lot of the physical evidence was ruined. And when detectives went through the garbage can, they found things like eggshells and a pack of cigarettes in there. They tried to lift fingerprints from that, but the water just destroyed so much of that evidence. They did locate three crushed beer cans under Teresita's couch, and they all had fingerprints on them, but only one had Teresita's fingerprints, so they couldn't identify any of the others. Interesting place to keep your crushed beer cans, but okay. I guess this was in the days before recycling bins, right? <laughs> Another question, how much money did Alan steal from Teresita? Well, we know that Alan was having some money issues at the time of the murder. He was late on his rent. He and his girlfriend, Yanka, were about to be evicted, and they were behind on the electric bill. And it's also not a secret that Teresita came from some money. She was an only child, her family was wealthy, and they lived in a mansion in the Philippines. It was also a pretty well-known fact at Edgewater Hospital that Teresita was extremely generous. Alan had been running a few errands for her, and she would tip him about 5 to $10, so he just kind of assumed that she had money. All of that being said, when Alan murdered Teresita and left, he only managed to get some of her jewelry, which we heard about, along with $30 from her purse. And what would 30 bucks then be in today's money? I'm no expert, but I looked it up and I think it's about $130 today. So not really worth it. Right. Not a lot of money. And speaking of money, I actually read it was Alan who, after Teresita's murder, actually took up a collection at Edgewater Hospital to buy flowers. That's ironic. Do you think that he <laughs> kept that money or do you think he actually bought flowers? That's a good question. That's a great question. I don't know. So besides Alan, who else did the police question? 
So there were about four or five people that the police talked to who were observed arguing with Teresita, and part of the problem was the cops got a lot of tips, but those tips were more like gossip. It was, oh, I saw this person arguing with her, or this person didn't like her, or vice versa. And those are the kind of leads they followed up on. But all the people had alibis, or they passed their polygraph test. Um, there was one guy known as Benny, the one-armed man, and he was cleared for obvious reasons. <laughs> and then the afternoon of Teresita's murder, her building's custodian saw a man knocking on Teresita's door, and it was a friend of Teresita's, but that guy said, that wasn't me. So he denied being there, took a polygraph, he passed, and ended up having an alibi. He said he was at a suburban mall seeing a performance from Frankie Yankovic, who's a legendary polka performer. I mean, I saw Ryan Cabrera in a mall once, but it certainly wasn't polka. Does anybody even know who Ryan Cabrera is at this point? I remember he had that one song. On the Way Down, and he dated Ashley Simpson. That's the kind of mall talent I was seeing in the 2000s. Well, all right. <laughs> there was that. Um, I should also mention there was another really gruesome murder around the time of Teresita's murder, and it was a man named Miguel Valdez. Well, he was charged with murdering a woman with whom he was having an affair and for then shooting another man who he thought was also having an affair with this woman. Valdez slit the woman's throat and then cut off her head and some of her toes before dropping them in the mail. And since he and his victims were Filipino, investigators thought maybe there was some connection since Teresita was Filipino, but Miguel was cleared of murdering Teresita. He had an alibi, um, but for the other murders, he was actually found not guilty by reason of insanity. Really? Yeah, it's a crazy story. Google it. Miguel Valdez, V-A-L-D-E-S, um, 1977 in Chicago. You just mentioned all of these different people that were considered a suspect or questioned about Teresita Bassa's murder, but didn't her ex-boyfriend live in Chicago too? Yeah, when they were dating, he was from Chicago. So do we know if he was ever questioned or considered a suspect? I don't think so. There was no report that they even reconnected when she moved to Chicago or that he was even considered a suspect. Okay, I have to ask, was Remy ever considered a suspect? So the problem with Remy wasn't her alibi because she had one. She was actually a patient at an Evanston, Illinois hospital on the night that Teresita was killed. The problem was more with how she received that information about Alan being the killer. Her and Alan worked together, but they really didn't get along from what I've read. There were stories that Alan went to HR to complain about Remy's work, and then there were stories of Remy arguing with Alan on a few occasions and told other people at the hospital she was afraid of him and really didn't like him. So the subplot of Alan's murder trial was really Remy's credibility, and she did not do herself any favors. In fact, in court, she testified that her job at Edgewater Hospital was canceled when in fact she had been fired. And then when the defense called her boss at Edgewater Hospital and asked her if Remy ever threatened her with physical harm after Remy was fired, the jury never got to hear the answer because um, there were objections and all sorts of stuff. Now, Alan's lawyer claimed that Remy's old boss would have testified that Remy called her and warned her that she would be next. Um, but of course, like I said, the jury never heard this because the judge did not allow the question. So yeah, Remy did not do herself any favors, but she was never considered a suspect. This question comes from Tracy. She is a Patreon subscriber, so thank you for supporting us on Patreon. She asks, maybe Remy was one of the women that Alan Showery had an affair with and he told her about the crime. 
Is it a possibility that she claimed the vision to cover an affair after their relationship ended? Mm. Well, both Alan and Remy worked together for about a year from the summer of 76 through 77. So while that could be a possibility, we did hear that, yeah, there were a lot of Edgewater women who admitted they were having affairs with Alan. But in the Chua's book, the cops talked about how they didn't envision any sort of scorned lover scenario between Alan and Remy because Remy seemed, quote, square. <laughs> well, that's a description. <laughs> yeah. And they wrote the book, so they could have taken that part out. But they said, no, leave in the part about me being square. Um, another question comes from Gulf Shore Charcuterie from Instagram. Did Remy ever socialize with Teresita? That's a great question. Todd, you mentioned that Remy really didn't do herself any favors in her questioning. Well, she said that she only met Teresita once at orientation, and that was in 1975. And then sometimes she would pass her in the hallways at work. But that wasn't entirely correct. In the Chua's book, they describe attending a big blowout party that Teresita hosted after she passed an exam. Teresita and Remy even talked that night. Teresita asked what it was like to have a husband and children. And that wasn't the only time they talked. Remy said in the book that her and Teresita also talked about love and marriage at work. Remy said Teresita asked Remy what it was like to make love with a man, which is when things got a little bit weird. Uh, Remy thought she was joking, but later explained how much she loved her husband. And I have to imagine that Teresita was asking because we found out in her autopsy that she was a virgin. So she was probably just genuinely curious. Remy said she felt like Teresita was struggling with the fact that she never got married, never had children, and kind of missed out on that part of her life. So... The Chua's in the book said they had a lot of interaction with her, but in the questioning, Remy said she only met Teresita once. So I guess that's not really true. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to Alan Showery. Why did Alan use the nickname Doc? So he liked to be called that. His mail came addressed to Dr. Alan Showery, even though he was not a doctor. In fact, when he first came to Chicago, he got a job at a detergent factory and got injured on the job, spent many months recovering in the hospital, even got a settlement from that injury from that company, and then blew through that and had to go back to work. And that's when he went to work at a bunch of Chicago hospitals, including Northwestern, Grant, and Edgewater. Um, but the bulk of his medical knowledge really came from working and being a patient in the hospital. So he was not a doc, but just like that nickname, and who wouldn't? And do you want to guess how much he got paid at Edgewater Hospital? Well, I'm going to guess it was minimum wage, and back then I'd say somewhere between 4 and $5. $3.65 an hour. Wow. I kind of feel like him calling himself doctor because he was a patient is like me calling myself a doctor because I watch Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> uh, so Alan was married once before, we found out. One question was, what happened to Alan's first wife? So we heard about Alan's common-law wife throughout this entire story named Yanka. Before Yanka, Alan was married to a woman named Lucy and had a child with her, and apparently he just left them behind in Alabama when he came to Chicago. You said that Alan had a rap sheet before being charged with Teresita's murder. What did he do? So it's not really a short list. He was charged with burglarizing a store in New York in 1964. He was charged with possession of stolen mail in New York in 1966. He was charged with theft in Evanston, Illinois in 1971. And then he was actually arrested for rape twice in Chicago in 1972, but was never charged. 
So two rape arrests in Chicago, but just never charged. Correct. Wow. Seems a little suspicious to me. Yeah. What was the big deal about Detective Stahula interviewing the Chua's without his partner? So the day this happened, his partner Lee was off that day. So he interviews the Chua's and keep in mind, he's investigating a claim of a threatening phone call that came from a suburban police department, but it involved two Edgewater Hospital employees. So the suburban cops just said, if you want to handle this, go ahead. We're not going to do anything with it. And he did. So he's a homicide detective investigating a prank phone call. I don't think he was expecting to learn at all what he ended up hearing that day. So another problem was that after the interview, Stahula didn't want to type up everything that Chua's told him and put it into an official police report. Instead, he decided to type up a confidential, undated four-page memo, and he gave it to his commander. So when the defense tried to make the argument that you know, they didn't do things by the book. Well, the lead detective not filling out an official police report kind of played into that narrative. And what happened to the Chua's after the trial? So they actually continued to live here in Chicago. They both avoided reporters after the trial, um, only did one interview, and that was when their book went on sale, which is a little ironic. Um, in that interview, Remy said if Alan Showery came after her, she said, well, that it must be my time to go. We did also learn that Remy talked to her priest about the whole incident, and the priest told her that these sorts of things only happened in early biblical times, so I don't necessarily know if the priest believed that she was being possessed. Although Dr. Jose Chua died in 2002, I believe that Remy is still alive and probably still fielding a zillion interview requests. And for lack of a better term, ghosting everyone. Oh. <laughs> So this question got asked quite a few times. Did you know that this story was featured on Unsolved Mysteries? Yeah, good memories, people, because this happened back in 1990. Um, the people who published the Chua's book actually shopped this story around to Hollywood and wound up selling the book rights to NBC's Unsolved Mysteries. And then in April 1990, that was season two of the original show with Robert Stack. And in that segment, Detective Stahula actually played himself uh, they filmed the murder scene in an actual Chicago apartment, and the hospital scenes were filmed at a hospital in Lakeview called Columbus Hospital, which, much like Edgewater Hospital, closed in 2001. Um, but what's interesting, it was one of the first segments the show did where the crime was already solved when it aired. You know, they used to have that number that if you have any tips, call us, but you didn't necessarily need this because Alan at that point had already served the time and was released. And later, they turned the story into a made-for-TV movie called Crimes of Passion, Voice from the Grave. This is Blair from Downers Grove. I was wondering if you guys saw that Crime Junkie, the podcast, dropped an episode on the same subject the day after you guys did. We did, in fact, know that Crime Junkie covered the story because Blair texted me the day that it came out, which was one day after we released part one of the Teresita Bossa story. I think it's always a sign that you're doing something right when you cover a story one day and then the very next day, an established big budget podcast that I've heard is like one of the top three podcasts in the world covers that exact same story. Now, what I'm grateful for is that we actually got this out before there, so it doesn't look like we were copying their idea. We had talked about putting these episodes out for so long and wanted to make sure we were doing them right. And we decided on a Halloween release date and they released on November 1st. Their episode was really good. I actually enjoy their podcast. 
I think ours had a few more details in it, but I might just be biased. Yeah. And the, I will say the one detail they left out was... They never referred to the hospital by its name, which is obviously Edgewater Hospital. Welcome back to this special Q&A bonus episode about the Teresita Bossa case for If the Walls Could Talk podcast. I don't want to waste your time. Let's get right back into the questions. The first trial ended in a hung jury. Now, we've been seeing a lot of court cases on TV recently. So my question for you is how long do juries have to deliberate before a judge can call a hung jury? From what I've read, it's up to the judge to insist how long that time is. He tells the jurors, you know, you have to keep deliberating as long as possible. In this case, this jury deliberated for over 13 hours. And, you know, it wasn't an easy case for them. It wasn't easy for the prosecutors. Remember, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Alan did it. And there was also another factor that was kind of the X factor with this whole trial, and that was the weather. So January 1979, one of the worst on record for Chicago weather. There was so much snow and the trial kept getting postponed. There was a holiday in between. So there was certainly some fatigue on the, the jurors part. You know, they wanted to go home. And one juror was even quoted as saying that her husband had been home three days by himself and she was afraid he hadn't eaten. So if I left you at home for three days, would you eat? I would be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> But this was a different time, 1979. So there was that going on, and the judge eventually called a mistrial on a Friday afternoon. So maybe it was likely he didn't want the jury sequestered for another weekend at the Holiday Inn. How did Alan get such a short sentence? So at Alan's sentencing, the judge asked Alan if there was anything he wanted to say, and this was very bizarre. Alan said, no, Your Honor. And then the judge said, well, the first step towards rehabilitation is admitting you did it, and that statement shows some remorse. And then he yelled out, sentence is 14 years. I'm not sure how know your honor translates into that. <laughs> Maybe I missed something? I mean, this case is so bizarre. But yeah, considering this judge known for handing out sentences of 200 to 300 years, ends up giving Alan the minimum at the time for murder, that being 14 years. But he also had two other terms, four years for armed robbery and four years for arson but the judge ruled he could serve those concurrently, meaning at the same time as the murder charges. So he ended up only serving four and a half before being released for good behavior. Wow. And this is an interesting question. Where was Teresita buried? So her remains were actually flown back to the Philippines where they had a memorial service and funeral for her. And we read that it's a Filipino custom to view the face of the deceased. Now, I'm not talking about like a normal open casket service where half of the casket opens up. This was like a little window so that you could see the person's face, which I'm not totally a huge fan of. But in this case, it didn't happen. Her face and her body were so badly burned, they kept that window closed. She's said to be buried at a cemetery across the street from her parents' mansion at the Santa Catalina Cemetery. But a couple of years ago, a Chicago blogger noted that this cemetery doesn't even exist. So do we think like it existed back in the 70s, but like they've built condos or something over it? I think there's two options. One is that they built something over it, which is creepy. Yeah. The other option is that it never existed in the first place, which is also creepy. Part of the mystery. There were a lot of mysteries in this entire case. Yeah. Do you think that the police believe that Teresita's ghost really took over Remy's body? 
You know, I don't think so. Everyone was so skeptical from the start. Um, even in that 1990 episode of Unsolved Mysteries, Detective Stahula said, you know, to this day, I'm not quite sure if Teresita came back. It's one of those bizarre incidents that you don't know if it's true or not true. And if you watched his face as he delivered that line, no part of him believed in the ghost. Even Alan's own lawyer, Bill Swano, said, you know, there are four possibilities as to where Remy got her information. She knew something about the murder. Alan told her she was just guessing or she actually did have a true psychic seizure. So that right there is a one in four chance. Okay, so do you guys actually believe that Teresita returned as a ghost? Listen, I'm the first to admit that I watch paranormal shows on TV, big fan of ghost adventures, so I kind of buy into all of this stuff in general. But this specific case, I don't necessarily think so. Based on the relationship that we know that Alan had with Remy, they didn't get along, they argued, they didn't really like each other. I think that Remy overheard Alan talking about what he did or maybe heard him on the phone or I'm not really sure how she found out, but I think she found out and then didn't want to tell the police herself because she was afraid that he might come after her. So she kind of just went with the ghost story instead. That's what I think. But even if she did that, Alan could still come after her. But not necessarily, because Teresita was the one that ratted on him <laughs> if she took the ghost story route. I think that's part of the problem. <laughs> Remy's credibility was so questionable in this case that if someone you really believed or, or trusted or knew, a family member, let's say, told you this happened to them, would we be more or less inclined to believe them? Maybe. I think in Remy's case, in her book, I actually found out something I didn't know. For at least one of the possessions she had, there were three, her parents were there, they were home, they were aware of what happened and watched what happened. In fact, her dad got a lilac branch that he used to try to beat the spirit away. He was like pounding on the bed, commanding the spirit to leave. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and Teresita yelled at him, or the voice yelled at him saying, you can't drive me away. Get away, old man, which... This is where the story falls off the tracks. <laughs> yes, this is where you had me and then you lost me. But also, you know, it used to be in my mind, I thought, okay, it's just her husband and her in the room, but now there are four people, her parents, her husband and her, you know, so now you have three witnesses, but all that to say, I still don't believe it happened. I still don't believe Teresita returned as a ghost. As far as Alan Showery and what happened to him, there was a question, what happened to Alan after he was released from prison? So he was released from prison in July of 1983. Now, he didn't return to Yanka, his common-law wife slash girlfriend at the time of Teresita's murder, but he is said to have run off with Naomi. Now, you're probably wondering, who the heck is Naomi? She was the mysterious Edgewater Hospital employee who wore the red coat to the trial. He had a thing for Edgewater Hospital employees, apparently. Apparently. So now that's two former girlfriends, wives, and two children that Alan has left behind. Wow. He lived in California for a little bit, then came back to Chicago, and then went to his hometown of New York City. But much like a ghost, Alan sort of vanished after that. His last known whereabouts were in the mid-2000s, and if he's still alive, he'd be in his 70s now. I just mentioned that Alan kind of had a thing for Edgewater Hospital employees, and we know that Teresita and Alan both worked there. Were there any other connections to Edgewater Hospital? 
Oh, there were a lot. Uh, so Remy Chua also worked at Edgewater until she was fired, or in her words, her job was canceled as she testified. Uh, Remy's sister also worked there. There were three other Edgewater Hospital employees who were said to have seen apparitions of Teresita. And why didn't we hear from any of them? These people were all afraid to come forward as well, thinking no one would believe them or they'd be laughed at. So they never came forward. They were anonymous. And then we heard about John Wayne Gacy. He was born at Edgewater Hospital. So too was lead detective Joseph Stahula. He was born there. And one of Allen's lawyers was the sister of Illinois Governor Jim Thompson. And Jim Thompson used to fly to Springfield by helicopter, and he would land at the helipad at Edgewater Hospital. So did he use that helipad because he lived in Edgewater? I think he lived nearby because there were other hospitals with helipads and other places he could have landed. But yeah, my guess is that he lived near the hospital. Ellen's other lawyer was actually disbarred for slipping money to a bailiff to pay off a judge. This was all part of Operation Greylord that took down a bunch of Cook County judges and dozens of other lawyers and court staff. And this is kind of where things come full circle at Edgewater Hospital. So there were four prosecutors who worked the case, and a couple of them popped up in the Edgewater Hospital story. One of those prosecutors later went on to represent Roger Eamon when he was indicted, and there was a second prosecutor named Scott Mendeloff. Well, that name certainly sounds familiar. Yes, he is the lawyer who was hired to chase Peter Rogan and all of his money all across the world after Peter fled the country. And if you don't know who Peter Rogan or Roger Eamon are, well, they're a big part of what happened at Edgewater Hospital in the 1990s. This was when the hospital did just about anything to fill up their hospital beds. In this podcast, we actually cover what they did and what ultimately happened. They had people who were bringing in senior citizens and people off the streets and then doing a whole bunch of unnecessary procedures on them. And this was all just to ring up their medical bills. Yeah, a bunch of doctors went to prison. Meanwhile, the hospital's former owner fled the country. And we share all of this starting with episode one of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. And I think after covering the full history of the hospital, the good and the bad, you'll see why this crazy story about Teresita Bassa could only have happened at Edgewater Hospital. Learn more on our website, ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. This episode was written by Todd Gans. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.